Good morning, everyone. That was okay. Let's try it a little bit more. Good morning, everyone. I am Dr. LaKendra Hardware, and I'm the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Goshen College, and it also is my pleasure to be the chair of our MLK committee. And we are pleased to bring to you the continuation of King's Celebration 2022. Today we will have our speaker, our featured speaker for the weekend share, as well as some members from the committee and others on campus that will be sharing beautiful pieces of history, of story with us. At this time, we'll have our prayer by Pastor Kathy Stoner, followed by selections from Voices of the Earth, led by Dr. Roz Wall. Please join me in a word of prayer. God of the movement, today we are gathered around our faith in you and our common longing for racial and economic justice. We thank you that this longing is one that you share, one that you planted in each of us. We confess that our ears are so often captured by the voices that seem important because they are loud, educated, popular, powerful, privileged. Tune our hearing to value the voices of your prophets from the margins, those without a big platform or megaphone or credentials or status, and help us to attend to our own inner voices even as we test them against what we know about Jesus. Bless us now as we join together in working towards your kingdom. May we hear in our sessions today the call to repentance from deeply entrenched inequalities, the call to turn towards right relationship with all, and a clear invitation to celebrate even in the midst of the struggle. Your love is big enough to hold all this. So we ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Let it be so. Amen. We want to acknowledge that we gather as Goshen College on the, on the traditional land of the Potawatomi and Miami people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the people who have stewarded it throughout the generations. This calls us to commit to continuing to learn how to be better stewards of the land we inhabit as well. We are honored to participate in the convocation this morning in celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. 
We were offering an iconic civil rights anthem, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, adding verses, ain't gonna let isolation turn me around, and denigration and segregation. And I invite you to fill in the blank as we're singing, and I invite you to clap with us. I would normally invite you to sing with us, um, but we're not doing that because of the COVID restrictions this morning, but I invite you just to be present and move. We're also singing a South African anti-apartheid song in honor of Bishop Desmond Tutu, who passed on December 26th. The song, Ndandisleli, is in Tlosa and speaks of being away from one's loved ones, missing one's sweetie, one's darling, and it was transformed in the international struggle against HIV to amplify the work of those organizing for public health. At the end of the convocation, we're singing, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Originally written in the early 20th century and performed by countless American singers, including Mavis Staples of the Staples Singers. One change of text in this arrangement is, in addition to the original chorus, David Moore has added, there's a better home awaiting if we try, Lord, if we try.
When one considers pursuing a doctoral degree, joy is not always the first emotion that comes to mind. And yet, it has been a profound joy to have worked with Dr. Vilnabashi Treitler in the process of completing my doctoral degree at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. At the time, Dr. Treitler was a professor of sociology at the Graduate Center and professor and chair of the Department of Black and Latino Studies at Baruch College. This past August, she moved closer to the Chicago area, where she is now the Osborne Professor of Sociology at Northwestern University. Her scholarship theorizes about international migration, race and ethnicity, and the dynamics of hierarchical socioeconomic structures, both domestically and internationally. She has published several articles and books, including The Ethnic Project, Transforming Racial, Fac Racial Fictions into Ethnic Factions, which was named to the Zora Canon, the top 100 books ever written by an African-American woman. She's also the 2020 recipient of the American Sociological Association's Cox Johnson Frazier Award for Scholarship in Service to Social Justice. She's currently at work on a memoir entitled Schooled about her experiences with public high school and higher education and as a visual artist, a related self-portrait series. Her expertise, creativity, generosity, and warmth remain significant sources of inspiration for me, and I am thrilled she is here to share her work with us this morning. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Bilna Bashi-Treitler. First, I want to thank everyone who's had a role in bringing me here today and hosting me this weekend. It's been a marvelous experience, and I am honored and uh, grateful to get to know your community a little better. Um, you know, I wrote out this whole talk and now I don't feel like giving it because <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I met so many great people and I, um, I well, okay, I'm going to tell you what I was going to talk about and I'm going to deviate a little bit from that. Um, my idea was to talk about the Poor People's Campaign and King's Last Days. I started that um, discussion yesterday at the sermon I gave here, and we had a Zoom conversation afterward. And I will still talk about that. Um, then I was gonna go into my own work and how I might relate it to King's efforts. And then um, at the discussion after the sermon, there were many questions about what we might do to continue King's legacy, and I'd like to talk about that too. Um, the, the topic I'm going to discuss 
in terms of King's legacy is civil disobedience, because this is what King was moving toward in his last days. Um, but I, I have a little twist on the idea of civil disobedience, so I want to um, talk about that a little bit. Um, I met two people that really touched me in the stories that I heard about them. And one was a woman who was at the Zoom conversation yesterday, and her name was Loretta. And Loretta told a story about how, um, you know, she finds it hard to get around. She has a three-wheeler, and she stopped to talk to, I think it was someone doing uh, landscape or yard work, or, and um, she talked to this young man, and they struck up a very friendly conversation and exchanged phone numbers. And he was a young man from Kenya, and uh, she's a European-American here. And uh, she said that basically she adopted him, <laughs> and he adopted her. And they, um, he said he took her on as his US grandmother that reminded him of his Kenyan grandmother, who he was far away from. And she described herself as having her life changed by his presence. And uh, he has told her the same about her presence in his life. And I thought that to be remarkable, because the conversation we were having was about what we can do. What can we do? to make this world better. And um, one of the things I talk about in, in my books is how people are or are not aware of the rules of the world, how the world works, and what we decide to do in order to respond to that. And so the rules of the world in the US might say, Loretta, you should just keep on rolling by. <laughs> Roll your three-wheel by this person who may not be in your class position. Actually, you know, they're out there in the dirt, literally. And um, she chose not to follow that rule. And he looks completely different from her. He's male and she's female, and maybe it's not appropriate for a woman to go up and talk to a man, and she chose to ignore that rule. And she chose to ignore the rule that says brown-skinned people and pale-skinned people have nothing in common, no cultural overlap, nothing to really talk about, and certainly no grounds for making a friendship. He's, he was far younger than she, and therefore maybe she thought they'd have nothing to talk about. And they have what's now a lifelong friendship. And they consider each other family. 
To me, that's civil disobedience. She chose to ignore all the morals and social laws that might have prevented her from saying something. And I really admire that. And I want us to take that as a, as a little beacon <laughs> in, the, in the children's portion of the uh, service yesterday, they had the children holding candles and singing this little light of mine. That's a little light that shines out there. And I want to thank Loretta for that story. I also met um, a young man named Malachi. And he has a, a, a podcast. He's a very young man and was extremely impressive. He took his hobby, which is to read books not made for children, they're made for adults. And his podcast translates those books for people his age. Like, what would you like to know? Let me tell you about this great book I read that, you know, you'd have to go seeking probably outside of the children's section of the library and he takes the time to read it. And he takes the time to put those ideas in his head, figure out what children should know, and tell any of his peers that care to take the time that there's so much knowledge out there for us to really mm, let simmer in our minds and Let's do so we can decide how we want to respond to history, social problems, economics, medical concerns, anything, anything that interests him. But he takes the time to get that out there. So he's breaking a few rules. He's traveling outside of the children's section of the library. <laughs> He is picking up books that um, maybe people might say are inappropriate for him. I mean, I know that you're aware that we're back to the time of banning books in this country. There are states that are banning books from anyone, not just children, but they, they are now trying to legislate what children should not hear in schools. And a lot of that is about our history. And he's taking the time to learn this information and spread it to other children. I think that's so admirable. And he really touched me. So um, I want you to keep those stories in mind when I'm talking about civil disobedience. We think about it as this thing that requires you to go out and get arrested and be loud and rowdy or, you know, um, make the newspapers. And I don't think that's required. It's only two things that are really required, and that is to see something that you think is wrong and decide to do something else. Okay, so um, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about 
King's Poor People's Movement uh, because that's exactly what Martin Luther King decided to do. He decided that he was seeing something wrong and he wanted to make a change. <clears throat> Understanding King's last days are important because he changed his vision of the just world just before he died. And he changed his tactics about what he thought would best get us there. Another thing you should know is that he was not supported. He was not fully supported by his closest allies. And he was attacked by his government and those who did not know him to the point where, as you know, he was shot and killed. By these last days, King saw North America's biggest problem as economic inequality. We all know him for his work on anti-racism, but he believed economic inequality was strongly related to racism. And he thought that um, not only if he switched to e economic inequality would he be tackling a problem with global implications because our world is completely unequal economically. He thought this was something that could unify people. He wanted to make us unified across races and cultures and ethnicities towards a single social justice cause. So, um, I explained some of this yesterday. The idea of the Poor People's Campaign was Senator Robert Kennedy's. He asked King to come to Washington and organize a march focused on poverty. And King thought about it. Uh, but he didn't do anything until he was finally moved after visiting a daycare in Marks, Mississippi, a tiny town in the poorest county in the country. Uh, he was there with Reverend Ralph Abernathy, his closest, closest associate. <clears throat> they didn't notice right away. The bright-eyed children they saw there were malnourished. The teacher at lunchtime took out a brown paper bag with apples and a box of crackers. And she took one apple and cut it into quarters and gave each child a quarter of an apple and a few crackers. And that was their lunch. When they saw this, King and Abernathy exchanged glances and they, and King was so saddened and heartbroken, he began to cry and he left the room. He couldn't stay. Neither man had seen poverty like this. And that night, laying on a motel bed, staring at the ceiling, King said to his associate, Ralph, I can't get those children out of my mind. That's when he decided to take on Kennedy's charge. OK. Uh, in November, 1967 at a staff retreat for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He called for a multiracial coalition to go to the nation's capital to implement this poor people's campaign. 
He believed that denigrated people would never be considered full citizens without economic security. The Poor People's Campaign was a movement meant to unite people of all colors and backgrounds in a quest, as he said, and I'm quoting, to assert the rights to a decent life and respect for others' culture and dignity. So he turned the campaign toward human rights for all. Previously, his focus had been on securing desegregation and voting rights. For his efforts, he was criticized. Southern Christian Leadership Conference members thought the campaign was too ambitious and that the goals were too amorphous. These included Bayard Rustin, a very close associate of his, who opposed civil disobedience altogether. Um, as did um, Abernathy. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they changed their name to the Student National Coordinating Committee and they would not endorse this campaign because they no longer supported a strict adherence to nonviolence. His retort at a January meeting, that's next year, the year he was killed, he said, we have an ultimate goal of freedom, independence, self-determination, whatever we want to call it. But we're, we are not going to get all of that now. And we're not going to get all of that next year. Let's find something that is so possible, so achievable, so pure, so simple, that even the backlash can't do much to deny it. And yet, something so non-token and so basic to life that even the black nationalists can't disagree with it that much. Do you see where I'm going with this? He said, let's choose something simple and pure that not a lot of people are gonna fight us about. We don't have to make grand gestures. We have to just do whatever it takes to change that little part of the world that we think is going in the wrong direction. Well, King thought civil disobedience was the way. He wanted the campaign to be waged in weekly events. He said, riots are easier. They don't need any organization. To have effect, we will have to develop mass disciplined forces that can remain excited and determined without dramatic conflagration. So the title of my talk is about um, domination and oppression. You know, domination, you might think of things like 
slavery, for example. Racial slavery, it was a scourge. There's a word for it in Swahili, the mafa, M-A-A-F-A. It's the African Holocaust. There's, of course, a, a Jewish Holocaust, or German Holocaust, we should say, because more people were killed than just Jews. They went after many people who they thought were not deserving of life. But that didn't happen overnight. Do you know that Adolf Hitler was lawfully elected to office? And those oppressions creeped. It creeped very slowly. Do you know that racial slavery also creeped very slowly? The first, well, historians often mark the first legal difference in slaves and indentured servants in this way. There, was, there were two, two indentured servants that ran away, one European and one African, and they ran away together. And when they were caught and brought back to justice, the man with the European background was given a sentence that was in accordance with the law, and the other man was given a sentence of life in enslavement. They committed the same crime, but the one who had the African background was made a slave for life. Blackness was created in moments like that. Whiteness was created in moments like that. We weren't always divided this way. And it creeped in on us in slow and methodical ways. So when we're looking for ways to fight domination and oppression, we have to keep our eyes open for those slow, creeping ways where books get banned or people of different races are not supposed to talk together, sit together, use the same water fountains. This is going to creep on you. And so you will have to make choices daily on how much creep you will allow in your lives. And those choices will be difficult. One of the things we talked about yesterday was the Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, maybe you're lucky enough not to have any such relatives, but most people have relatives that they might not particularly enjoy having dinner with, <laughs> who might say something Mm, a little bit off color, no pun intended. <laughs> and what will we do? Will we wait until dinner's dishes are being cleaned up to say to our closest cousin, wow, 
auntie so-and-so's at it again? Or are we gonna sit at the table and say, you know what? I'm, I used to listen to this, but I'm grown now. And I'm not gonna just let you say that anymore without challenging you. That's breaking a law. We're all supposed to be thankful. We're all supposed to be happy. Well, you know what? That comment is a buzzkill. And I'm not thankful for it. <laughs> You're allowed to say that. <laughs> you are allowed to say that. When you see someone being offensive, when you are in public and someone isn't being fair, you're allowed to say something or you're allowed to do something. In fact, I encourage it. I want you to think about it. Think about what it means to do something other than these dramatic conflagrations that King is, wants to move away from. And just understand this, I don't think what I said was really so terrible, was it? But again, he was, King was not supported by his closest allies. He was attacked by the U.S. government, and as you know, he was shot and killed for his ideas. After his death, uh, activist and Baptist minister Ralph Abernathy became the next president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He continued King's campaign, but steered the efforts away from civil disobedience and toward the creation and maintenance of a tent city. That was part of the original plan, but, but after King's death, that was the only plan. A committee of 100 was formed to lobby for the P Poor People's Campaign in advance of the setup of what was called Resurrection City, and they had five tenants to their Economic Bill of Rights. They wanted a meaningful job for everyone at a living wage. We don't have that. They wanted a secure and adequate income for all those unable to find or do a job. We don't have that. He wanted access to land for economic uses. We don't have that. He wanted access to capital for poor people and minorities to promote their own businesses. We don't have that. And he wanted the ability for ordinary people to play a truly significant role in government. Not only do we not have that, but voting rights are being taken away from huge swaths of the population. So I'm going to give you a list of things they did to just prepare just for the tent city. They visited the Department of Justice asking for an end to police brutality against Mexican and indigenous Americans. Against Mexicans and indigenous Americans. 
we are still arguing for a stop to police brutality against African Americans. We haven't even gotten to where he was. They went to the Department of Labor. They asked for jobs, living wages, job training, input on labor policy, and an end to discrimination in jobs, and an end to high unemployment. We don't have that. They went to the Department of Agriculture to, to appeal for efforts to address the crisis of hunger and malnutrition in the United States, calling for programs for food stamps, school lunches, and food distribution, protections for small farmers, and limits to the favoritism shown to corporate farmers. That was in 1968. We don't have they went to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare asking for expansion of medical services to the poor. We don't have that. Democratic control over schools and their budgets. Real progress on desegregation. And democracy and dignity in the delivery of welfare services and resources. We don't have that. They went to the Office of Economic Opportunity and criticized them for their failure to live up to the name, Office of Economic e Opportunity. Where is it? <laughs> They're supposed to be aiding the poor, and they weren't doing their jobs. They went to the Department of Housing and Urban Development and targeted them for failing to supply sufficient low-income housing and failing to address housing discrimination. They demanded Spanish speakers to be included in low-cost housing programs. They criticized urban renewal programs. Urban renewal, it really is a code word for the destruction of housing for the poor and racially segregated among us. They went to the State Department with a delegation to demand the enforcement of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. They, this is a treaty that was supposed to protect those Mexicans who were on their lands when we took over parts of Mexico. It's a fascinating history that I talk about in my book, actually. Um, but you can see the way we treat Mexican-Americans now. They demanded the cessation of diplomatic relations with South Africa and Portugal because of their state-enforced racist policies. You know we did not get freedom from apartheid any time in the 60s, so we did get that. The Department of the Interior was approached to demand jobs, income, housing, and schools for Native Americans, and to stop the Bureau of Indian Affairs from intentionally promoting Native American racism against African Americans. That's also something I write about in my book. Congress was hostile hostile to all of these efforts. 
Still, people from all over the nation under Abernathy's leadership did march on Washington. They had leadership and de delegations from the Chicano movement, Native Americans, Puerto Ricans, the American Friends Service Committee, and the Welfare Rights Organization. Despite their motives, President Johnson and his administration prepared as if the marchers were attempting a violent takeover of the nation's capital. You can understand the irony. 200,000 army troops were activated and they prepared for a military occupation of the capital. The FBI sought to monitor and disrupt this campaign. They called King a communist and said he was an insurgent intent on undermining the nation. And they instituted an F the FBI's ghetto informant program, which recruited thousands of people to report on poor black communities. Average people to spy on each other and others that were told that they were told were lesser than they are. This included FBI agents who posted, I'm sorry, who um, posed as journalists and they were wiretapping average citizens. I'm not gonna go into the details of the city because I wanted to focus on civil disobedience to domination and oppression. So you can research it on your own if you wish. Just know that they arrived in Washington, they set up that tent city, and they were evicted when the permit ran out under a rain of tear gas and reports of mass police brutality and that they never conducted the large-scale civil disobedience that King had recommended. King's fourth and last book, entitled Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, was published a year before his death. Its core message is that of hope. He reestablished his commitment to nonviolence and moralism. He faulted European Americans for their failures to educate themselves about the plight of African Americans and others less fortunate than themselves. He argued against a welfare state. What he wanted was a guaranteed income. He believed this would alleviate poverty abolish it altogether. And he thought that was the most effective solution. That would bring dignity to people. So in this, he changed his focus from one on civil rights, that is the rights of civilians in the nation to which they belong, to human rights, basic rights and freedoms to which every person is entitled simply because they live some examples of this. Life, 
liberty, equality. They are trials. Freedom of thought and expression, freedom from slavery and torture. I want you to think first globally. Think about our country and its place in the world. We are, we're so privileged. We're in one of the most modern nations on the planet. We're resource rich. Do you know most such countries have guaranteed health care? Most such countries ensure fair wages for their people? No other country, no other country, rich or poor, incarcerates as large a segment of the population as we do. Not even countries led by dictatorships. No other wealthy country comes close to our high infant mortality rate. No other wealthy country has such a high maternal death rate. We can do a lot better. So the, the book that I have been um, most known for, I suppose now, <laughs> is called The Ethnic Project, Transforming Racial Fictions into Ethnic Factions. Um, and it's a book primarily about racism. It talks about the beginning of it talks about the idea of race and where it comes from, as I suggested. It wasn't always with us. It was a very creeping, uh, oppressive system that has been with us for hundreds of years. Some historians put it at, a set at in the 1500s is when it was kind of sort of developed. Um, I talk about how that was developed in Europe, and um, I kind of mark it as something that I think really began when the English colonized Ireland. When that happened, they really set up an entire system of what I would say is race. You know, right now we, we think in this country, English and Irish, white people, they're the same. But in, in this time, the English did some things that we would see as familiar, like Jim Crow. They even had a law that said any Englishman who dresses like an Irishman or lives like an Irishman could be punished by law. They instituted that kind of segregation where you could not adopt any Irish culture. They meant to destroy their culture. Does that sound familiar? 
They took their land, killed their people, destroyed their culture, and punished anyone who would cherish that culture or cherish those people. That's race to me. That's what, um, that's why actually in my next set of research, I'm gonna be moving towards understanding domination and oppression because I think we get stuck in these little categories. We get stuck in, you know, these people over here are just, they're gonna work on feminism and these people over here, they're gonna work on race and those people over here are gonna work on globalization and, and we're not really understanding, I think, that oppressive systems are all around us, they're interlinked, they're creeping, they're not big, they get big because we don't stop the creep. Um, when I look at race in the beginning of this book, I explain how this is a global phenomenon and we are just doing a local version of it. Okay, and what I explain is, if you look at race, you can look at it like a chest of drawers. Okay, we, the drawers are the races, and we put ethnicities inside of them. So you may or may not know, there's a famous book called um, How the Irish Became White, for example, and what I'm arguing is the Irish were put in the bottom drawer, the drawer of we would call black, and the top drawer would be white. And they got themselves out of that drawer and into the top drawer in this country. So our drawer system has the Irish near the top. And then other groups have moved themselves up. And there's sort of a king of the hill fight where we're all pushing each other off the hill to say, well, I belong on the hill. I don't know about you, and you push them off. Somebody's got to be in the bottom drawer. And this history that I recount explains why it is that African Americans are there. But I talk about 12 other ethnic groups in this book, all 12 of them worked with, lived with, and intermarried, and had children with those people we call African Americans now. If 12 other ethnic groups did all these things with African Americans, do, do we really even know what an African American is? We're all mixed, we're all mixed up. We know that, but we still keep these ideas going. I argue in my book that there are several things we can do to alleviate the scourge of racism, but this works for economic inequality, prison abolition, other social problems. Like King said, we need a multi-ethnic, a multi-racial coalition to work together. No social problem we have belongs to just one group. We have to stop playing this king of the hill game with each other, always trying to prove that one group, our group, is the best. 
or at least better than those other guys. We must learn compassion and learn how to act on it. And we must be able to take risks, to stand up to our fellow humans who choose violence and domination over others. And our biggest problem, I think, is that we must never tolerate intolerance. We are always told to be tolerant, and that's our goal. We must never tolerate intolerance. So, I will just tell you, um, I, before coming here, I read um, a little piece of philosophy about civil disobedience. There's a huge literature on it, and people are arguing about it, but there are four basic factors, facets, that I want you to consider. Civil disobedience is principled. You have to choose to break a law you oppose because you believe it to be unjust. Okay? If the law is, we're only gonna say nice things about, we're only gonna say nice things at the dinner table and somebody says something that is, again, no pun intended, off color, they already broke that rule. You're not, <laughs> you understand? If you think that it's unjust because that terrible thing that was said just sits there, or, you know, someone is not invited to the table because they're different. You're, you can be principled and choose to break those silent laws. Uh, you can be, we should be conscientious, serious, sincere, and act with conviction. Civil disobedience requires civil communication. It's not, you, you can't do it in secret. You can't just like take someone on the side and be quiet about it. You are actively choosing to break the law. You're not trying to get away with a crime. You're choosing to act, to communicate your wish for social reform. And therefore, the fourth principle, it has to be public. You make this act openly, and you take responsibility for it. So, I suggest that there's quite a lot we can do to follow King's thoughts and his messages and build on his legacy. And I want you to think about the end of his life and how he advanced his own thought and chose to change even when he didn't have support. Think about what it means to be civilly disobedient and the examples of Loretta and Malachi. These are just my thoughts, and I hope they spark your own ideas of how to better our world. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Dr. Vilna. On behalf of Goshen College, uh, our president, uh, President Stosfus, our Vice President of Student Life and our other cabinet members, and of course the MLK Committee. You have blessed us, you have challenged us, you have invited us to really consider the small ways that we can make impact and be present with others and for others. So thank you so much. At this time, I wanted to take a moment to um, say thank you for that and just let you know. I did not acknowledge those of you who are joining us on live stream but we do know that many of you have taken COVID protocol seriously and are joining us on live stream as well as those who are here spatially um, respectful of others. So we wanted to really say thank you to everyone. Last year's celebration was not in person at all. So it is a great, it is a great honor and celebration to be able to do it in person this year. To all those who have made this happen, to our event staff, to our ITS media, um, asking all the right questions, putting things in place. There is more to come. Our celebration continues and we do have more. I wanted to make sure we tell you to stay tuned because things will be shared about the afternoon schedule uh, as well as um, our arts competition. We will announce our winners here. Hopefully you had an opportunity to tune into that, but Dave Kendall uh, will share more information on that shortly. At this time, we will have another selection from Voices of the Earth.
to Voices of the Earth for your contribution this morning was beautiful. Uh, following this service, we will be having a book signing. Um, Dr. Vilna will have her books available out in the North Fellowship Hall, so you can wait in line. Um, we'll have some note cards for you to fill out and hopefully speed up that process and reduce contact as well. Um, beginning at 1 o'clock, we will start our uh, breakout sessions. First session um, will be with Lawrence Guyton um, from 1 to 2.15. Uh, church in the Movement will examine the historical and theological role of the church and how it was instrumental to college students. As we look at SNCC student leaders like John Lewis, Diane Nash, we will see how they were mentored by voices like Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Fred Shuttleworth. They were also trained in nonviolent direct action with sit-ins by voices like Reverend James Lawson, Reverend C.T. Vivian, and others. Session A2 will be music in the movement, then and now, with Dr. Roz Wall. Um, if you're interested in exploring how music amplified the civil rights movement and how music is amplifying the movement toward racial and economic justice today, or how the role of the arts and artists play in creating social change and how they energize and sustain um, us, you can join her for her um, exploration of this, experiencing and expressing resistance, vision, and joy. A3 and B3 breakout session will be intergroup dialogue. Um, you did have to register in advance, um, so stay tuned. There will be some other options um, later in the, the school year if you'd like to join us for another intergroup dialogue. From 2.30 to 3.45 in the South Fellowship Hall, Dr. Regina Shan Stoltzfus and pa Pastor Kathy Stoner um, will hold a discussion on resilience strategies for the long haul. Um, about max of 30 in that room, so you'll see a capacity sign that goes up if that uh, is full. So watch for those in the doors. I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, they'll be exploring how change might happen slowly and how can we remain in the work for a lifetime without burning out. This is a discussion and strategies for long-term peacemaking work. It's highly participatory and you're expected to be challenged and energized. B2 breakout session will be with Kendall McGee and Dr. Erica Buring on anti-violence and action um, from 2.30 to 3.45 in the Koinia room with a max of 30. A discussion of strategies for empowering youth and other community members to consider methodology presented through the lens of the Alternative to Voices project. Kendall is an excellent speaker um, and I hope that you enjoy that. And then again, um, A3 and B3 breakout session will have uh, continuing of the intergroup dialogue. I invite Dave Kendall up now to talk about the arts competition winners. Thank you, Courtney. Well, I'm excited. Uh, well, first off, thank you for everyone who's been involved this morning. It's really powerful and uh, really appreciate your words. This year, we had the privilege of launching an arts competition called the Voice in the Movement Arts Competition, and this competition was open to our students here at Goshen College and to Elkhart community high school students. And so all of the high school students across the community were competing with our own Goshen College students. And this year, we had two distinct entry paths. One path was called the Descendants of Dr. King Path, which was open to black and African-American students, and it was to, uh, designed to sort of highlight 
the African-American and black experience. Our other competition path was called the Allies of Dr. King Path, which was open to all of our other students. This year, we had four categories. Uh, the site in the movement was an art, a visual art uh, related category. The voice in the movement was for spoken word, and our category, the sound of the movement, was for performance. And we had one other, uh, the vision in the movement, which was for uh, film and video and multimedia content. This year we saw uh, entries in three of those categories, and we awarded uh, our judges, who worked really hard on the judging because we had lots of really, really great uh, entries. We awarded two categories this year, and so I have the winners of our competition, and I'm going to announce them now. Our two grand prize winners from the descendants of Dr. King Path, we had Gloria Bontrager Thomas. She was our grand prize winner, and she uh, entered in the site in the movement category, and we want to congratulate her now. Our, our second grand prize winner from the Allies of Dr. King Path was Goshen Bethany High School senior, Helen Stoy. And she entered in the category of the sight and the vision. We'll congratulate her now. Our first place winner from the Sight and the Movement category from the descendants of Dr. King Path was Kyra Green. So we'll congratulate her now. The rest of our winners were from the allies of Dr. King Path. Our first place winner from the Voice in the Movement category is Mariella Asparza. We'll congratulate her now. We had a second place winner from the Voice in the Movement category, Anastasia Stevens. She, both of those students, by the way, are our own GC students. Uh, Anastasia, we'll congratulate her now. We had two other uh, winners uh, from the Site in the Movement category. Our first place winner, our senior, Carmen Campos. She won with her piece, uh, the yearning to be seen. We'll congratulate her now. And our second place winner from the site in the movement category was our GC senior, Priscilla Tanajanaya. Congratulate her now. Thank you all for all of you who entered, we look forward to next year. We're going to be uh, th thinking a lot about how we approach this competition next year and improve it. And so look for this competition again next year. Thank you very much. A few things before you go this morning. Uh, we have a closing prayer service that we'd like to have you all join for. It's at 4 o'clock today in the chapel. Um, and then also... Don't forget to join Dr. Vilna for her book signing following this in the fellowship hall. The sidewalks outside are also really icy, so please be careful um, as you leave here today. Thank you all for joining us, and special thank you to Dr. Vilna and Voices of the Earth.